Book One, Chapter Two of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lew Wallace, Book One, Chapter Two. The man as now revealed was of admirable proportions, not so tall as powerful. Loosening the silken rope which held the kufiya on his head, he brushed the fringed folds back until his face was bare, a strong face, almost negro in colour, yet the low, broad forehead, aquiline nose, the outer corners of the eyes turned slightly upward, the hair profuse, straight, harsh, of metallic lustre, and falling to the shoulder in many plates, were signs of origin impossible to disguise. So looked the pharaohs and the later Ptolemies. So looked Mizraim, father of the Egyptian race. He wore the kamis, a white cotton shirt, tight-sleeved, open in front, extending to the ankles and embroidered down the collar and breast, over which was thrown a brown woolen cloak, now, as in all probability it was then, called the abba, an outer garment with long skirt and short sleeves, lined inside with stuff of mixed cotton and silk, and edged all around with a margin of clouded yellow. His feet were protected by sandals, attached by thongs of soft leather. A sash held the kamis to his waist. What was very noticeable, considering he was alone, and that the desert was the haunt of leopards and lions, and men quite as wild, he carried no arms, not even the crooked stick used for guiding camels, wherefore we may at least infer his errand peaceful, and that he was either uncommonly bold, or under extraordinary protection. The traveller's limbs were numb, for the ride had been long and wearisome, so he rubbed his hands and stamped his feet, and walked round the faithful servant, whose lustrous eyes were closing in calm content with the cud he had already found. Often, while making the circuit, he paused, and shading his eyes with his hands, examined the desert to the extremest verge of vision, and always, when the survey was ended, his face clouded with disappointment, slight, but enough to advise a shrewd spectator that he was there expecting company, if not by appointment. At the same time, the spectator would have been conscious of a sharpening of the curiosity to learn what the business could be that required transaction in a place so far from civilized abode. However disappointed, there could be little doubt of the stranger's confidence in the coming of the expected company. In token thereof, he went first to the litter, and, from the cot or box opposite the one he had occupied in coming, produced a sponge and a small gurglet of water, with which he washed the eyes, face, and nostrils of the camel. That done, from the same depository, he drew a circular cloth, red and white striped, a bundle of rods, and a stout cane. The latter, after some manipulation, proved to be a cunning device of lesser joints, one within another, which, when united together, formed a centre-pole higher than his head. When the pole was planted and the rods set around it, he spread the cloth over them, and was literally at home, a home much smaller than the habitations of Amur and Sheikh, yet their counterpart in all other respects. From the litter again he brought a carpet or a square rug, 
and covered the floor of the tent on the side from the sun. That done, he went out, and once more, and with greater care, and more eager eyes, swept the encircling country. Except a distant jackal galloping across the plain, and an eagle flying towards the gulf of Aqaba, the waste below, like the blue above it, was lifeless. He turned to the camel, saying low, and in a tongue strange to the desert, "'We are far from home, O racer with the swiftest winds. We are far from home, but God is with us. Let us be patient.' Then he took some beans from a pocket in the saddle, and put them in a bag made to hang below the animal's nose, and when he saw the relish with which the good servant took to the food, he turned and again scanned the world of sand, dim with the glow of the vertical sun. "'They will come,' he said calmly. "'He that led me is leading them. I will make ready.' From the pouches which lined the interior of the cot, and from a willow basket which was part of its furniture, he brought forth materials for a meal, platters close-woven of the fibres of palms, wine in small gurglets of skin, mutton dried and smoked, stoneless shami or Syrian pomegranates, dates of El Shalebi, wondrous rich and grown in the Nakhil, or palm orchards, of central Arabia, cheese, like David's slices of milk, and leavened bread from the city bakery, all which he carried and set upon the carpet under the tent. As the final preparation, about the provisions he laid three pieces of silk cloth, used among refined people of the East, to cover the knees of guests while at table, a circumstance significant of the number of persons who were to partake of his entertainment, the number he was awaiting. All was now ready. He stepped out. Lo! In the east a dark speck on the face of the desert. He stood as if rooted to the ground, his eyes dilated, his flesh crept chilly, as if touched by something supernatural. The speck grew, became large as a hand, at length assumed defined proportions. A little later, full into view, swung a duplication of his own dromedary, tall and white, and bearing a howdah, the travelling litter of Hindustan. Then the Egyptian crossed his hands upon his breast, and looked to heaven. "'God only is great!' he exclaimed, his eyes full of tears, his soul in awe. The stranger drew nigh, at last stopped. Then he too seemed just waking. He beheld the kneeling camel, the tent, and the man standing prayerfully at the door. He crossed his hands, bent his head, and prayed silently, after which, in a little while, he stepped from his camel's neck to the sand, and advanced towards the Egyptian, as did the Egyptian towards him. A moment they looked at each other, then they embraced, that is, each threw his right arm over the other's shoulder, and the left round the side, placing his chin first upon the left, then upon the right breast. "'Peace be with thee, O servant of the true God,' the stranger said. "'And to thee, O brother of the true faith, to thee peace and welcome,' the Egyptian replied, with fervour. The newcomer was tall and gaunt, with lean face, sunken eyes, white hair and beard, 
and a complexion between the hue of cinnamon and bronze. He, too, was unarmed. His costume was Hindustani. Over the skull-cap a shawl was wound in great folds, forming a turban. His body-garments were in the style of the Egyptians, except that the abba was shorter, exposing wide flowing breeches gathered at the ankles. In place of sandals his feet were clad in half-slippers of red leather, pointed at the toes. Save the slippers, the costume from head to foot was of white linen. The air of the man was high, stately, severe. Vasvamitra, the greatest of the ascetic heroes of the Iliad of the East, had in him a perfect representative. He might have been called a life drenched with the wisdom of Brahma, devotion incarnate. Only in his eyes was there proof of humanity. When he lifted his face from the Egyptian's breast, they were glistening with tears. "'God only is great!' he exclaimed when the embrace was finished. "'And blessed are they that serve him,' the Egyptian answered, wondering at the paraphrase of his own exclamation. "'But let us wait,' he added. "'Let us wait, for see, the other comes yonder.' They looked to the north, where, already plain to view, a third camel, of the whiteness of the others, came careening like a ship. They waited, standing together, waited until the newcomer arrived, dismounted, and advanced towards them. "'Peace to you, O my brother,' he said, while embracing the Hindu. And the Hindu answered, "'God's will be done.' The last comer was all unlike his friends. His frame was slighter, his complexion white. A mass of waving light hair was a perfect crown for his small but beautiful head. The warmth of his dark blue eyes certified a delicate mind and a cordial, brave nature. He was bareheaded and unarmed. Under the folds of the Tyrian blanket which he wore with unconscious grace appeared a tunic, short-sleeved and low-necked, gathered to the waist by a band, and reaching nearly to the knee, leaving the neck, arms, and legs bare. Sandals guarded his feet. Fifty years, probably more, had spent themselves upon him, with no other effect, apparently, than to tinge his demeanour with gravity, and temper his words with forethought. The physical organisation and the brightness of soul were untouched. No need to tell the student from what kindred he was sprung, if he came not himself from the groves of Athene, his ancestry did. When his arms fell from the Egyptian, the latter said, with a tremulous voice, The spirit brought me first. Wherefore I know myself chosen to be the servant of my brethren. The tent is set, and the bread is ready for the breaking. Let me perform my office. Taking each by the hand, he led them within and removed their sandals and washed their feet, and he poured water upon their hands, and dried them with napkins. Then, when he had laved his own hands, he said, Let us take care of ourselves, brethren, as our service requires, and eat, that we may be strong for what remains of the day's duty. While we eat, we will each learn who the others are, and whence they come, and how they are called." He took them to the repast, and seated them so that they faced each other. Simultaneously their heads bent forward, their hands crossed upon their breasts, 
and speaking together they said aloud this simple grace, Father of all, God, what we have here is of thee. Take our thanks and bless us, that we may continue to do thy will. With the last word they raised their eyes and looked at each other in wonder. Each had spoken in a language never before heard by the others, yet each understood perfectly what was said. Their souls thrilled with divine emotion, for by the miracle they recognized the divine presence. End of chapter.